In this bonus episode, my guest Dr. Ben Samuel and I get into the future of AI and storytelling. So first, check out his main episode, number eight, if you haven't yet, as these are excerpts from our much longer conversation. But I wanted to include them because he gets into some really interesting details about the differences between types of AI storytelling creation and what we can do to keep AI a diverse and inclusive landscape, both from the tech side and the mindset and execution in our institutions and ourselves. So thank you for coming on this bonus journey with us. I appreciate you and I think you're the best. Uh. <laughs> For me, what makes you really special is your deep love of storytelling and seeing how that love of humanity and interacting with people comes out through your connections. And um, what, what I think is really interesting is when I think of computer scientist, I don't think heart-centered lead <laughs> focused on storytelling. That's just, and that's my baggage. <laughs> so I apologize um, for judging, prejudging. Um, but I think that's why hearing about your projects, which we'll go into in a little bit, sure. is so fascinating to me because you really do come from this storytelling and prioritizing humanity standpoint. Um, and especially with you know, the, the SAG after a strike, and we've yes. been really talking about AI, you are an AI specialist who specializes in storytelling and the humanity of it. Yes. And so just this whole, the whole connective thread here for me of you taking these past experiences and then weaving them into your current art that is using the current technology, but for the best is just really exciting and fascinating. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, 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 I mean, I guess just to touch on some of that, uh, you, I, I, uh, I think, I, uh, I think that you are not necessarily wrong. That mm -hmm. like there are a lot of computer scientists who don't necessarily put. I, I, I don't know. I don't exactly know how to phrase it, but I, I think. I, I, I humble myself to say that perhaps I do bring a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, I think that oftentimes uh, people do tend to maybe pigeonhole themselves into like one particular title or one particular like path. Um, and and I and I think that like sometimes it starts very early. I think it starts very young, and uh, we like identify ourselves by oh well I. I am this and I am not that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is, uh, man, I, I, I want to watch my words carefully here. I think, I, I, I'm also like I'm asking myself, what do I really believe? Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think it's the case that there are many people who either at a young age decide for themselves, I am technically minded or I am not technically minded. Yeah. And so for the people who identify as technically minded, they're going to lean into maybe those like, career roles or mm -hmm. career trajectories, like being a computer scientist, and they'll maybe feel a little, you know, uncomfortable or like it's outside of their identity or comfort zone mm -hmm. doing more like artistic things and vice versa. I think people who decide for themselves, oh, I'm not interested in that. Or I think even, I think not being interested in something is totally fine. Mm -hmm. Sadly, in the field of computer science, I think there are many people who identify as like not being good enough or not being smart enough 
to like go into that. And mm-hmm. that is something that I try to like push back against. Yeah. Like, anybody's capable of doing yeah. that if they, if, if they want to. And they might not want to. And yeah. that's A-OK. Okay. Um, but, but, but I, I, yeah, I guess I, I try to lead by example a little mm-hmm. bit that this is a false dichotomy and yeah. the two actually like interweave with each other really, really beautifully. Like, and complement each other. And, and complement each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, to be a computer scientist is to, in some ways, be an artist. It's, it's yeah. to be a problem solver. It's yeah. to think of creative solutions to things and if you're building a i mean my background is specifically in game development mm-hmm. but but if you're building any piece of software to think of a way to bring something into existence that did not exist before i mean that is that is a the, creator exactly yeah. absolutely yeah um and so i um see you belong in this chair for like five reasons <laughs> no, bro, bro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Happy happy that I haven't uh, convinced you otherwise. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I also need to say that I'm being unfair because I, uh, one of my brothers, Chris, hello, Chris, is um, an amazing computer scientist (laughs) as well. And so he, and wildly emotionally uh, touched in and uh, intelligent. And so I definitely know that um, they're. You can have both, and it is a false dichotomy. Yes. Um, I find myself, interestingly enough, <laughs> you know, I was just on a Zoom video call with my family. Hello, love you. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Hi, Sam. Um, and all three of them, I am the fourth less, least techie person in the call. Mm-hmm. Um, they are all wildly more talented than me. And so I always have a little bit of a uh, imposter syndrome in the tech world because of how talented my family is. Mm. Um, and so I think I lean more into the emotional intelligence side. Mm. Whereas whenever I'm in artistic situations, a lot of times I get praise for how amazing my technical skills are. And I, I know they aren't, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm a committed learner and I'm fast at learning things. And so I can in fact, pick things up quickly. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just wonder, I, you know, how many, how many women, how many artists stay out of uh, technical sides of things because they don't see themselves in that role. So I, I'd love to uh, dig into that. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, first of all, I do want to just say that, like, being talented at anything is, like, all relative. There's always going to be mm-hmm. someone better at you than a thing and always something that you're going to be better at at a thing. So I, I definitely would not sell yourself short, Jessica. It sounds to <laughs> me like you probably are extremely technically minded. Uh, and so, uh, so good job. <laughs> uh, and then, and then the, the, the other thing about, I guess, representation of women in computer science, absolutely agree that that is a huge problem. And I think that it is this kind of sadly self-fulfilling vicious cycle of mm-hmm. there aren't necessarily as many women in the field as men, and so women growing up don't see themselves in those roles, and so they kind of like veer away from them, which then just sort of you know keeps the problem going. Uh, I, I don't think there's an incredibly simple solution to this. Um, I mean, uh, I think you know making sure that you know institutions hire more women is mm-hmm. certainly a very uh, important intervention that needs to happen. Uh, I know that something that I try very hard to do in the classroom is design my classes in such a way where I try not to, uh, 
I don't know, breed an air of toxicity. Sometimes I think there can be this almost toxic mindset of either you have it or you don't, you're good enough or you're not good enough. Mm. And I try to really create a sense of community and collaboration amongst my students. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. You're not doing yourself or anyone around you any favors if you have this kind of false macho attitude of, oh, this is so natural to me. If instead everybody kind of leans into and embraces the vulnerability of being stuck or scared or feeling dumb and <laughs> using that as a tool to kind of create that sense of camaraderie of like, you're struggling with this? Me too. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Let's figure it out together. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily know if that helps, you know, women more than men, but I, I'm trying to just create environments of inclusivity. Yeah. Well, I think that's so important. And also it sounds like you're really focused on a growth mindset, yes. which is, uh, something that we all can benefit from yes. and allows us to see ourselves in different arenas. Something that we've talked about just a little bit is the differences in the kinds of AI. And so something you talked about beautifully was there's, when we think of chat GBT, yes. we think of um, you know, it goes and learns a bunch of facts and models. And yes. then when I ask chat GPT a question, it decides, it looks at all of that information and filters it from the question I give it, but it's really just kind of a filter of existing information. Correct. Um, and we don't really know how that works. And that's part of what makes it interesting and also could be kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, but and your work is very different, right? Yes, and, yes. And the, the symbolic nature and the rules being kind of based in an anthropological and psychological model. Yes, absolutely. Jessica, uh, thank you so much. Uh, so yeah, uh, whereas ChatGPT and other large language models or uh, things of that nature are sort of black boxes, uh, the work in AI that I do is less focused on the sort of machine learning branch mm -hmm. of AI and is more the symbolic approach that, generally speaking, is more interpretable. And, like, you know, we don't have to get down into this, but in the, you know, academic, you know, debate right now, the interpretability of AI is, like, of major concern. Um, and that that's referring to how it got the answers that it got? Exactly, yes. Okay. Yes, like, like how, what, what, what went into the answer that we got so that we can actually understand the biases that might be latent in the underlying model that produced and, those answers. And for everybody that's listening, something that you have said in the past that helped me to understand this was basically for the chat GPT model, we call that systematic or what do you, what do you call uh, it? Statistical. Statistical, um, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we, if we call that statistical, basically it's represented by numbers that to our eyes would look random. And so we can't know what information is in each little packet there. Is that kind of true-ish? Absolutely true-ish. <laughs> uh, 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 I, uh, uh, it would, it, it's, it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast yeah. to dive too deep okay. into that. But, but yes, like there's definitely like a representation that is just like honest to gosh, like not capable of being interpreted by humans in these models that get created. Um, we can like understand the algorithms that produce the models. Yeah. And certainly we can understand the output that the models create, but the model itself is this like 
unknowable thing, but it just so happens that when this very particular set of unknowable numbers are arranged in just this way, then when we put in this input, we actually get output that we really like. And so we just accept that I guess this is a good model. That's wild. It, it is crazy. <laughs> so there's kind of two sides of that. There's the unknowable nature of that, but then there's also the limits of the data set yes. being things that already pre-exist and probably are, are historical and not necessarily representative of what we currently want to go to. And so we see this um, happening in our creative industries sometimes of happening with models being created by AI for diversity, but they're pulling from really grossly outdated uh, or racist and sexist models yes. to then, and it's just perpetuating some pretty horrible things. Exactly. It perpetuates it. And yet because people can kind of like point at, oh, well, the algorithm did it. A yeah. computer did it. Therefore, it must be right. And like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, like it is drawing from data that very much so like was determined purely by humans in the past. And like humans, of course, are capable of bias and error, either through ignorance or flat out maliciousness. Mm -hmm. um, and then also like the algorithms itself that produce those models. Mm -hmm. made by humans. Uh, so so there is a lot of <laughs> a lot of humanity uh, at play even in these technical processes yeah. and uh, for good and for ill. Um, yeah. And then you had talked about a, a hiring process that kind of perpetuated that. Could you yeah. just touch on that? I, I, I mean, this is just like one of many examples. Yeah. But um, uh, like Amazon, uh, they my knowledge, they do not do this anymore, but there was a moment where they were experimenting with like an AI model to help make hiring decisions. So mm -hmm. the, you know, they created the model based on previous people that they had hired saying, oh, well, these are the people that we hired. So these are the types of people that we're excited about. And then now that they have this model, in theory, they can input new resumes. And instead of having to laboriously interview all these people or look through these things, they can just have the model, have the machine say, oh, we should give this person an interview or, oh, no, this person's not going to be a good fit for us, uh, which in theory sounds like it would save the company a lot mm -hmm. of time. Doesn't sound bad. But again, if you're drawing from historical data that has biases in it, and so as was the case in this situation, there are historical hires tended, as you say, to be racist and sexist or misogynistic. Um, it just meant that, like, the qualities that they were looking at in the new resumes weren't actually their honest-to-gosh qualifications. It wasn't mm. things like, oh, how many years of programming experience you have or what previous titles have you had. It was looking at, like, ridiculous things that should not make an impact. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, is this... Is this a name that is commonly associated with women, basically, mm -hmm. or something like that? Because historically, they weren't hiring yeah. women, as, as an example. Um, and I, I thought that it, uh, example was really useful for me because actually it's just the machines showing us what we typically do as humans. And so there's actually something kind of cool there that it's showing us, hey – you are making decisions based on what's happened and worked in the past, and you're blinding yourself to who's not at the table. Absolutely, and but 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 it's 
we're touched on this idea of like interpretability, like it's not immediately obvious that it is in fact even yeah. doing that because, yeah. oh, all you see is the output of yeah. like, yes, hire this person or no, don't hire this yeah. person. And then it takes someone kind of doing an intervention and like looking at, oh my gosh, like I think I'm detecting a pattern here yeah. to kind of realize that yeah. like, oh, maybe our model is looking at elements of the resume that we don't actually want it to be yeah. caring about. Um, but but yes, hmm. in theory, once we get to a point where we're able to better interpret the actual thought process behind this, and there is research that is being done in interpretable AI, interpretable mm -hmm. AI and human-in-the-loop AI, things like mm -hmm. that, um, then yes, absolutely, I think it can do a really good job of shining that spotlight and maybe... Helping, helping us be, be better at the problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's like a cool way that AI is maybe not on purpose, but is helping us kind of see our blind spots yes. as humans. Absolutely. Um, but what's really interesting to me about the work you do is it's actually in the symbolic side of AI. Yes. And how does that differ in? You've talked about how it's instead of kind of being a blind, you know, black box that we can't see into, you can go into the code, I think it is, and be able to see, like, I had this output. So then you can change the rules and adapt them and see where it's going. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there are there are trade-offs between the two. And there mm -hmm. are certainly like people that, you know, feel very passionately one way or the other. With symbolic AI, um, there's a lot more kind of authoring effort involved. Mm. There's kind of mm -hmm. a, a much higher upfront cost because you're not just scraping a lot of like initial data essentially mm -hmm. to power your model. You're in some ways you're creating it from scratch, mm -hmm. if you will, for each new project. Um, and on the one hand, some people might turn their nose up at that and say, oh, that sounds awfully laborious and tedious. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think it works very nicely because what it actually means is that the process of creating this AI system or creating a, you know, project or game or what have you that is powered by an AI system is an honest to gosh, like act of authoring. Like mm. you are actually creating the, the rules that govern the system. And that then becomes an opportunity of self-expression. It becomes an mm. opportunity of storytelling. So, yeah. um, one of the this this isn't necessarily a game that I worked on, but me and several of my colleagues in the Expressive Intelligence Studio um, developed an AI system called uh, Com Ilfo, uh, which uh, roughly translates to like what what is proper or like what as it should be like in terms of like etiquette, uh -huh. and it's a system that enables non-expert authors or like non technical expert authors to write rules that can then inform the behavior of AI characters. Um, oh, so, so you could, so I could come in and kind of create a sub world that has characters and rules it, and I could bring my story it, to yours. That is exactly right. And, right. and that's one of the big sort of like, I don't know, like, like agendas of my research is trying Ooh. to enable as many people to tell their stories as possible in this domain mm -hmm. that like sometimes feels uh, inaccessible. That mm -hmm. sometimes feels like, oh, well, in order to do that, I need a PhD in computer science mm -hmm. and uh, I want to 
I just need to be friends with someone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> with a PhD in computer science. So, yeah. so, so, uh, uh, like, like one project that I've worked on, uh, uh, the vSpace project, um, which is in collaboration with Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, but also through the University of Nantes uh, in France, um, is a project that is reconstructing a. Uh, 18th century Parisian theater mm. that uh, burned down. Uh, yeah. So we don't really have a lot of historical documents of it. Uh, and the project, the vSpace project, is reconstructing it in virtual reality, not only architecturally, so not you know pouring through the limited uh, visuals that we have and trying to create like a virtual 3D model of it, but also reconstructing it socially, if you will. Mm. So as part of that project, we had workshops, we gathered together French scholars, so French historians, French literary experts, people who don't have a background in computer science, but who are better equipped than maybe anybody else to be able to understand and speak to French propriety of oh, the era. That, oh, that's perfect. And it's such a good example of there really were social rules <laughs> that we can then program into the system. It's, and you have built the structure it, to take that. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. And so we gathered these people to yeah. encode these rules yeah. and then use that to inform the behavior of the AI characters yeah. in this VR game. Oh, uh, I think that's so fascinating. And we've talked about the possibilities of like, you know, using it on a sci-fi script. And yes. so then it can kind of interpolate the the scientific experts could put in information and then the the narrative could go in and the what's possible in this world can combine and give us more information. A absolutely. So so yeah, so so different people with their different sets of expertise can kind of focus on different elements. You kind of like throw it all in the AI pot, if you yeah. will, tell it to go, uh, and then like see what comes up and also have there be like, uh, you know, interactivity, like yeah. let players or users like actually engage with the characters and have them be informed by, again, the rules that all these experts have said. And because it's this more symbolic thing, if you ever see something that seems problematic or unintentional or surprising uh i guess first of all i should say oftentimes surprise is delightful like, yeah absolutely. surprise is not always problematic sometimes right. surprise is beautiful but because we can trace things back to mm -hmm. these rules we can always see oh this is why characters behaved in this particular way yeah. and then you as like the author of the system can decide for yourself is this a good thing or a bad thing? Like, yeah. like, am I happy that my system surprised me in this way? Or is this a sign that I actually need to kind of, like, go back in and, like, add more safeguards to, like, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, I, sometimes I think of it as almost like an act of, like, sculpture. Like, like yeah. sculpt the possibility space mm -hmm. of the simulation so that it's uh, only capable of presenting things that uh, adhere to my artistic vision. That's if you will. beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. You're giving it the less beautifully, like the guide rails of <laughs> sure, yes. Of this this behavior. Mm -hmm. You you get to explore this sandbox, but not outside of the sandbox. Uh, yes, correct. Okay. Yes. That's really interesting. Or if in my sci-fi example, we learn something about the rules of science or we have a discovery, we can then go back in and without throwing the whole scrapping the whole project you can go in and make an adjustment to the rules if you get new information. 
Yeah, if, if, I mean, I mean, if if I'm understanding, like, if that new information sparks like a new idea of like, oh, that's really great. Let's like create additional like 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 let's let characters be like care more about this particular yeah. thing. You can go in and yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Join the community and share your creative challenges on Instagram and Facebook at Creators Cafe by Kika Labs. And also check out my website, kikalabs.com, K-I-K-A-L-A-B-S.com to sign up for the mailing list so you always know when a new podcast is released and to check out my coaching and digital courses to help you be a more confident and joyful creator.